Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. In our podcast series, we are going to discuss a range of topics affecting police officers and anyone involved in the criminal justice system. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com. Forced marriage is illegal in the UK. It can be defined as a marriage where one or both people do or cannot consent to the marriage and where pressure or abuse is used to force them into the marriage. Applications for forced marriage protection orders or FMPOs are on the rise. In 2019, the forced marriage unit gave advice or support on over 1,300 cases related to a possible forced marriage. In a staggering 80% of the cases, the victims were female, and in 27%, the victims were children under 18. I'm Daniel Burke from 3D Solicitors, and with me to discuss how forced marriage protection orders can be used to tackle the crime of forced marriage is Elizabeth Fox, a barrister from Sergeant Sim. Elizabeth, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you. How how do the police and local authorities go about making an application? Right. So um, the way to make an application is to put an application into the family court. And the statute to look at is the Family Law Act of 1996. And specifically, you're going to be looking at Section uh, 63C for this. So basically, an application can be made um, by, I suppose, three different uh, entities really. So the first is the person who is to be protected by the order, so the actual person who's at risk. In my experience, I, I've never actually seen someone do that, um, so I, I would think they're very, very rare. Um, the other entity that's provided for in the Act is by a relevant third party, and that includes local authorities. So local authorities can um, make these applications, no problem. The third entity that can make an application is um, any any other relevant person. And so that will obviously include a police force. But police forces have to seek leave to be able to make an application. And what that means in practice is basically there's just another form to fill out. That's form FL430, in case anyone Mm. was curious. Um, It's really simple. It's two pages long. um, And you basically just have to explain your reasons for applying on behalf of the person. There's guidance on the form itself, but what the court will consider in deciding whether or not to grant leave is um, all of the circumstances, which is obviously fairly broad, but what's specified in the act is the applicant's connection with the person to be protected, the applicant's knowledge of the circumstances of the person, as well as the wishes and feelings of the person to be protected. But those are firstly only insofar as they're reasonably ascertainable, and also, so far as the court considers it appropriate in light of the person's age and understanding to have regard to them. So if you're talking about a child or someone who has um, who lacks capacity, obviously the risk to the person um, may outweigh their wishes and feelings um, in certain circumstances. Um, but all that to say, it's quite simple. Um, it's a fairly easy process. And if you are a police officer acting on behalf of the police force, it's very likely that you're going to be granted leave. So those are the um, relevant principles. This is a, there's a four-stage route map, I think, that was developed, which we followed when the court's considering making an FMPO. Uh, do you want to talk us through how that works in practice? 
Yeah, like you said, there's four stages. So first stage, the court has to essentially establish the underlying facts which provide the reason for making the application um, on the basis of the evidence and um, by applying the civil standard of proof. But what will often happen in these cases is that the first hearing will be an ex parte hearing, so hearing without notice to usually the parents. Um, At that hearing, the court does not have to undertake an in-depth analysis of the facts. Um, At that stage, it's really just protecting the person, which is the court's primary role. Um, But if the continuation of the FMPO is contested, that's when the court does have to undertake what they say is an ordinary fact-finding evaluation of any potentially relevant factual issues. So so what that will look like normally is just essentially fairly standard cross-examination, usually of the officer bringing the application and possibly family members, that type of thing. So then you move to the second stage Um, which is essentially once the court has identified the findings of facts or made those findings of fact, the court should then determine whether there's a need to protect a person. And that can be either from being forced into a marriage and from an attempt to be forced into a marriage, or if the person has already actually been forced into a marriage, which you see from time to time. The third stage is again, based on those findings of fact, the court then has to assess the risks and the protective factors, um, which relate to the particular circumstances of of the individual (laughs) who's said to be vulnerable. So what the court has to do at this stage um, is to explicitly consider, so very clearly in the judgment, explicitly consider whether or not the facts as found are sufficient to establish a real and immediate risk of the individual suffering in human or degrading treatment sufficient to cross the Article 3 threshold. So I'm sure most people listening will know that that's the prohibition against torture um, in human or degrading treatment or punishment. Um, And it's suggested that the court drop a balance sheet to come to that decision about whether or not that risk has been established. The final stage, the fourth stage, is that if the court finds that the facts are sufficient to establish that risk, then the court has to undertake the exercise of achieving an accommodation between essentially Article 3 and Article 8. And that term is quite an odd one. Um, I think most practitioners are used to hearing about a balancing exercise. And of course, that comes into play at stage three. But at stage four, the court has already established that there's a real and immediate risk and that the person's going to be subject to inhuman or degrading treatment. So essentially, the court has to do at least what is necessary to protect the potential victim from that real and immediate risk. And the need to do that cannot be reduced below that necessary minimum, even if the Article 8 factors are really quite weighty. So how are, they, how are they balancing it with those rights to privacy and family life? Yeah, so, so that's why it's more of an accommodation rather than a balancing act, because you have to accommodate the Article 8 rights, but only to the extent that it doesn't infringe upon the Article 3 rights, if that makes sense. Yes. I mean, it's, um, 
an area where you know there will occasionally be uh, cultural differences and uh, how do the courts approach for example expert evidence in certain areas there may be issues around evidence of capacity yeah uh, but then there may also be uh, cultural issues which need to be taken into account um, yeah, well, I, I think one of the really important things to keep in mind about these types of cases, I suppose there's two things. So firstly, it's actually quite rare to have a um, contested hearing in these cases because often what will happen is the protected person actually is usually the person who will raise a concern with the police or possibly a friend of theirs, you know, cousin, something like that. And the police will usually take urgent action to remove that person from their family or from the circumstances that they find themselves in. And they'll make these ex parte here, you know, ex, ex parte applications, go in, you know, get the application. And then by the time the family get involved, they say, well, we want what's best for our daughter or our son. And essentially, we don't want to go against this order. And, you know, we're not going to do anything that the court says we shouldn't do. And that's one reason why it's quite important to keep in mind that these orders shouldn't be unduly onerous because if they are, then you're more likely to get contested hearing where normally the family will say things like, oh, well, you know, if our daughter doesn't want to leave the country, then she shouldn't, she shouldn't have to and that, that should be fine. But the other important thing to keep in mind, the second um, point is that the legislation is actually quite vague and the case of Re K was um, one of the first to, or I think the first, to provide any sort of real guidance on these cases. And what the court said was that the legislation is intentionally vague. I think they, they don't refer to it as vague. They, they say something about a high degree of flexibility. <laughs> um, but essentially, it's quite vague because what the court wants is each case to be tailored to its own individual facts. And so in terms of kind of expert evidence and capacity, those are issues which may arise in certain cases. They won't in every case. I've personally certainly seen cases where capacity is an issue and you almost get this kind of blend between family law and court protection or inherent jurisdiction. And um, there can be some quite kind of thorny jurisdictional issues. But the court has clearly stated in this case that the family courts very clearly do have jurisdiction to make um, these types of applications or grant these types of applications. So I suppose the nature of some of these cases may be such that much of the information coming to the police is anecdotal. How do the courts approach issues of hearsay in these? Well, there's civil proceedings. So hearsay is admissible. And often, I, I would say in the, probably the majority of the cases, the um, complainant or the protected person won't be present to give evidence. And the court is usually absolutely fine with that. And obviously hearsay is um, a matter where you know, the weight to be attached to the evidence is a matter for the court um, to determine. But if you've got, for instance, a statement from the protected person saying, you know, I don't want to be taken out of the jurisdiction. I don't want to be married to this person. I don't want to have contact with my family anymore. You know, those are obviously very weighty factors. And even if that's in a statement. If you also have a police officer saying, this is what this person has told me, this was you know, the conversation that we had, it's likely that the court is going to attach a significant amount of weight to that. And the courts also has provided further specific guidance in relation to passport orders, which yeah. um, they may give the court jurisdiction to impose travel restrictions within the FMPO. So I wonder what circumstances can these be granted and how far can they go? 
Yeah, so that's a, a good question. They are actually fairly, I would say, fairly common in these cases because often um, part of the picture or the circumstances of these cases will be some element of removing the person from the jurisdiction. And a lot of the times, I think, when these cases can come to the fore is when, for instance, a family member makes arrangements for a daughter, for instance, to go out of the country to meet the person that they want them to marry, essentially. So um, these are quite common. And the court does have jurisdiction, and as you noted, to impose travel restrictions. And it's very um, possible that the court will consider it necessary to do so to protect the individual. And obviously, we'll take into account the individual's wishes and feelings. But my understanding is that the court sees that as part of the overall analysis of the person's well-being, rather than, you know, that kind of strict um, balancing exercise that we normally think about. And then in terms of how far they should go, so the court actually gives some pretty clear guidance on these um, passport orders and and the um, length of them. So they essentially said they should only be imposed indefinitely in the most exceptional of cases. Usually what the appropriate course will be is to list the matter for a further review, ideally shortly before the, um, the travel ban or the passport order is going to expire. And I think in this case, they put it in place for a period of four years. And that was actually on the basis of that they had had two hearings in the case, one in 2016 and one in 2018. And not much had changed between those two hearings. So within those two years. So basically, the court said, well, it's unlikely that much is going to change in the next four years. So we'll extend it that far. But I would personally think that normally you'd see a passport order put in place for maybe a year or two. I think four years is probably quite a long period of time on a first hearing. Right. And the police, I mean, they're um, facing, I suppose, potential liabilities if they don't protect vulnerable people under Article 3. They, they could find themselves on the wrong side of a civil claim if they're not yeah, taking appropriate absolutely. actions. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely a, a kind of note of caution to police forces um, because we've seen quite a lot of case law recently coming out of Article 3 claims and it's definitely an area that's still evolving. Personally, I don't know of any cases and civil claims that have arisen out of these types of cases and practically speaking, whether or not they would come to light that frequently, I'm not too sure, but it is, it's certainly something to keep in mind. But from what I've seen, um, I think police forces are, a lot of police forces are very aware of these orders and are quite actively engaged with uh, protected persons or, or victims or complainants and um, are really actively going out to proactively protect these individuals, which is great. Yeah, there are specialist teams that are dealing yeah. with this now, which is yeah. um, extremely important. So thank you. I mean, do you have any final words of caution or... If you are working in the um, police realm, it's definitely worth having a read of the case of Rikay. If, if nothing else, it's quite helpful to kind of know what to expect. But also, just more generally, it's very important to be aware of these types of orders and that they're available because, you know, as, as Daniel's noted, there is um, a potential liability issue if, uh, you know, if if a police officer is approached and nothing is done, which I'm sure would never happen, but 
um, it's it's certainly worth being aware of the um, kind of procedural points as well as the general principles. Yes, and remembering its form. Form FL430. Yeah, so it's worth having a read of that as well, just in case. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I think we're doing another uh, episode with you later in this series and look forward to speaking to you then. Me too. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com.